October 2019, and I am one of your hosts, Byron Pace. My brother Daryl uh, is not here again this week because he is currently on a plane on his way back from Tanzania, having been filming uh, and taking stills there for over the last two weeks. Uh, I know that we will catch up with what he has been up to in the intro of a podcast very, very soon. Uh, I am not in Scotland. I am over in Montana. I've been working alongside Tyler Sharp for the last week, who is editor-in-chief of Modern Huntsman, and of course, the partner of this podcast. Uh, We've been busy working on volume four. Believe it or not, we are on volume four, and very, very soon, you're going to be able to pre-order volume four, so keep your eye out on the Modern Huntsman website and on our website, thepacebrothers.com, to very, very soon be able to pre-order volume four. Uh, It's an all-woman volume. We're showcasing uh, great women from around the world in the outdoors, conservation, hunting, and fishing space. And I've had the great privilege of uh, spending some time uh, with some of the women who are guest editors of this volume. I'll be working alongside them this week. And in fact, you're going to hear from one of them right now. Uh, Jesse Johnson, I'm not going to even going to give you an inkling of what the story is about because she gives a rundown of what she writes about in Volume 4, uh, but it's an intriguing conversation and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And as you get to the end of this podcast, she probably gives me one of the greatest quotes I've heard in a very, very long time. I think my life has been changed by listening to it. Well, it certainly made me feel a lot better after feeling uh, a little bit jaded with with the whole hunting and conservation space right now because uh, we seem to be uh, under increasing amount of attacks. Kind of hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel sometimes. I have an apology to make because two weeks ago I completely forgot to give you the animal sound. And I forgot probably because my brother wasn't here and I was doing the intro by myself and he's normally the person that remembers such things. Uh, So there's nothing I can do about that, but I can give you an animal sound for this week. Now, it's not going to be tied to a competition to win a copy of Modern Huntsman like we always do. You're going to hear about that next and how you can win a copy of uh, Modern Huntsman and a Spartan Precision Bipod. Uh, But first up, just for fun, here's your animal noise for this week's podcast. So if you think you know what that is, hit us up on social media, or on Instagram, or send us an email, or on Facebook, and in two weeks' time, we will tell you and see if you manage to get it right. For the last two shows, we've been asking you all a very, very important question, uh, and that is, if you were to give money to an organization which does proper, on-the-ground conservation work, who would it be? And the reason we've been asking that question is because our friends at Spartan Precision asked us that question. They want to give 2% of their profits to conservation, and they don't know where that money should go. They would like to keep the money in the UK, but if if we can't come up with a good answer to this question, uh, then they're very happy to put it where it makes the most difference, even if it's outside of the UK, which is the country that they're based. Uh, And so we've been asking all of our podcast listeners to suggest... Uh, organizations who are doing really great work and making a difference in the conservation space. In return for your suggestions, 
we are giving you the opportunity to win not only Volume 3 of Modern Huntsman, but also a Spartan Precision Bipod. If you don't know about Spartan Precision and the innovation in the industry with regards to bipods and tripods for rifle shooting, and actually now cameras as well, uh, go and just Google Spartan Precision, check them out. Uh, I've known Rob Gearing, uh, the owner of the company, since the very, very beginning, when it was actually not even in production. Uh, he's got a great team there, and he's an awesome guy. He's been on the podcast before, talking about his equipment, so you can actually go back and listen to our chat with Rob Gearing. I think if I remember rightly, we recorded it in a very noisy hall uh, in Ewer in Nuremberg in Germany. Uh, but you can go and hear uh, what he's about. And if you want even a little bit more insight into his family, we did a tremendous podcast with Jenna Gearing uh, probably about 12 months ago. So you can go and check that one out as well. So tell us what you think. Where should his company, Spartan Position, put their 2% profits? And uh, I think probably on the next podcast, or certainly within the next two podcasts, we're going to collate all the suggestions together. We'll mention them uh, on the show, and uh, we'll we'll try and pick a winner. So lastly, before we get into the show, I need to say a big thank you to our top-tier patrons, uh, who include James Marchington, uh, South Asher Stalking, John Henry Pete, Chris Griffiths, Richard Stevens, and Ronnie Speakman of rdcontracting.co.uk. If you would like to support the show, just head over to Patreon, uh, look up the Pace Brothers, and there's a whole bunch of tiers and different ways that you can support us to create these podcasts. Uh, there's even a $1 option now. So open for everybody, and we'll even give you something in return. We really do appreciate your support. So with no further delay, I give you Jesse Johnson. Jess, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. We are... The three of us are sitting in Montana, and the third person is not my brother, because he's somewhere deep in Tanzania. Uh, you're replacing him, Tyler. Mr. Sharp, welcome back to the show. <laughs> I'm your American brother. Brother Bear. Yes, thanks for having me. Glad you're uh, back in Montana with uh, I'm glad some, to be back. some fall season, so you'll get to see some uh, some new stuff. Hopefully do some fishing, too. Some hunting. We'll yeah. see. The mountains were beautiful coming in on the plane. So this is the best time of year to be in the West. Yeah. Mm. Well, you got some big boots to fill since, you know, you're basically, you're Daryl today. <laughs> well, I hope you've got some like little I'll, sharp jokes. I'll to... work on my Scottish slang. I'm good at making fun of people on social media. So I think I can take a couple jabs like he does. Okay, good, good. We miss you, Daryl. <laughs> we, uh, we got together last night with a whole heap of people who are involved in the next volume of Modern Huntsman. Volume four. Now we're going to do a whole podcast on right. this, but just as like a couple of sentences, sure. tell the the good people who listen to the show who are should all be very well aware of our partnership with Modern Huntsman on the podcast. Yeah. Now, uh, what's in store for them? Just in a couple. So of sentences. yeah, we're doing a women's issue, and the last thing that I wanted to do was a women's issue and pretend like I know what the hell I'm talking about. So I hired four women editors: uh, Jess Johnson, who we're here with now, Nicole Qualtieri. Lindsay, former Lindsay Elliott, now Lindsay Brown Davis, and Katie Marchetti. And they've helped me sort of shape and steer the different demographics, ages, regions, topics, women from all over the world that we want to feature and, and to showcase a wide variety of perspectives in the hunting and fishing and just outdoor communities. And uh, it's been incredibly inspiring. And I feel like I'm not doing anything. I'm just sitting back and <laughs> listening to the conversations. And, and so last night, you know, we all got together and had a little wild game dinner. Yeah, it was awesome. And uh, yeah, it was kind of fun because we've, we've been having conference calls for six weeks and Jess and I had never met a lot of Well, I hadn't us. met anybody in the room. Exactly. But I, everyone's voice I'd heard at some point on a call. Right. 
So it was pretty cool just to get everybody together in the same place at the same time and in a non-work environment and uh, have some laughs and some drinks and plan the plan the road ahead. Uh, Jess, what's the process been like for you so far? Have you been enjoying it? Oh, I've been really enjoying it. I think uh, inspiring is an understatement um, for the amount of interest and and stories that are coming in and you know when we have these discussions about okay you know we're writing pieces around all these amazing women um there's always other women that like other stories about other women and i feel like you could do nine books with everything that has come out but i I would dare say it won't be the last one it's not like there isn't uh women there hasn't been women contributing to all the other volumes of Mm -hmm. uh, modern huntsman but this was just you wanted to dedicate it yeah it was one of the it was one of those things where even in you know, we've always had women contributors, but we wanted to have more, yeah. right? And I think... We're the that- same with the podcast. I was thinking this the other day because it is a very... The conservation and hunting and fishing space has historically been very male-dominated. I think that it's shifting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I'm very conscious of the fact that uh, most of our guests are, right. are male. But that's just by virtue of the fact of the percentage of people involved yeah. in this sort of world that we discuss. Um, so I'm I'm super excited that this week I think it's all my guests yeah. are going to be women in the field. Yeah. Well, and I think that's from, from the be- you. I mean, <laughs> I'm a woman at heart. Uh, you know, part of Modern Huntsman from the beginning, right, has been to focus on individuals and organizations and stories that don't necessarily get um, the mic or mainstream attention a lot. And so I think in that same spirit, once we kind of dug into that, we're like, well, wow, there's a lot of badass women out there that nobody knows who they are or maybe that's they don't even have social media yeah. or they've just done amazing things i mean i've you know i've spent you know been coming out here for 10 years and we never met and i had never heard so much about what she does and the artemis sportswoman and all of that and so to just now that we've opened that can you know i feel like we need to start a second publication <laughs> so Jess, how Joking. did you how did you <laughs> how did you uh, get in contact with tyler how did how did that work with the sort of the modern huntsman hookup in the first time Tyler, I think you reached out to me, but um, I think Becca Frucht was maybe I think who so. connected the dots. Because yeah. I kept hearing whisperings of Modern Huntsman's Volume 4 being an all-female uh, edition. It was edition. feeding through the grapevine. Yeah, that is the small international community. It yeah. was amazing because it, it did like – and everybody was like – Artemis has to like reach out. You guys have to, you, you, and Tyler and I hadn't met. And, um, you know, I'd been a big fan of the other modern huntsmen, especially because I'd noticed that there were women in it. And from, I think volume one and on. And, um, I thought that was a standalone and I had a lot of respect for that. So, uh, as this sort of started shaking out, everybody kept being like, Oh my gosh, you guys have to connect. Like you have to connect. And, 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 um, Tyler made the first phone call, which was pretty funny because I was sitting in the middle of a game and fish commission meeting in Wyoming. <laughs> and I like got a text from Becca and she was like, I think Tyler's going to call you. Just like pick up a number if you don't know it. Um, and stepped away and was like, oh, like I'll just hop on the phone with him real quick. And I think cut to like an hour and 45 minutes later. Yeah, it, was a, it was almost a two hour conversation. <laughs> it was amazing though. And I was like sitting there like, oh, this is, this is, it wasn't a bad hour and 45 minute conversation. It was like that kind of thing where you like look down and you're like, oh God, I've probably just taken up his entire day. <laughs> That's good though. I mean, obviously there was, there was something that was clicking. Yeah. yeah I think we have very similar, um, just approach things very similarly. And I really appreciated that. It was a good conversation to start out on. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about, about your background. I mean, I heard, you know, there were so many people here last night that it's all kind of, uh, it's all kind of mixed up for me, but for, for people listening, how have, uh, you know, what has your life been like to this point that has given you the background that has now taken you to 
being involved in Modern Huntsman? Oh, I think I had you're, a I mean, diverse you're background. From, you're from Montana. Um, originally, yeah. I actually moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, I, I probably had a childhood that looked a lot like an army kid's childhood, but my parents were ranch managers and my dad was a reclamation rancher, um, which he would come onto ranches that were run down and beat up and not, not ecologically balanced, um, and bring them back into that sort of functioning, uh, working ranch that was not hard on the, uh, ecology around it. Um, so I grew up in a conservation mindset with uh, a ranch kid. I'm an only child and moved around Montana, Wyoming, very Northern California. So kind of ran the gambit of the West and then got like the very like far West uh, side of it. And then sort of moved away from that and was a dancer and wanting to go to school for ballet. And um, oh, wow. I took a hard turn there and ended up at back in Wyoming as a bow hunter. <laughs> And How did you go from ballet to bow hunting? <laughs> you know, it was a surprisingly easy jump. Uh, ballet and bow hunting are very similar. I think the disciplines and the muscle groups and the sort of same zone of brain uh, was something that I just found very similar and uh, wasn't going to be dancing professionally. And so I uh, came back out west because my parents were managing a ranch in Wyoming and I was scratching my head, like, what was I doing inside in California? Like, when I can be here in Wyoming, <laughs> like, what was I? I was, you know, and kind of brought me back to the outdoors and, um, it just fit, you know, it was, I got to be around wildlife. I got to be in incredible places. And then I also had this discipline of bow hunting and that kind of led into the conservation realm, which I'd always grown up in. And I had always been a part of my life, but through a lot through the work that your dad was doing, my dad and my mom. Yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by that though, because that's, I mean, at the time I'm talking about like when you were a kid and that's Mm -hmm. what your, your parents were doing. Surely that wasn't a main focus of ranching. Because that seems like something that's talked about a lot now to me here oh. in the West in terms of like the ecological balance. But surely it then it was just like be. making money out of the land with... It was right at the tail end. Ranching has gone through, you know, I think a phase where it was right at the tail end of like the old knowledge of ranching where it was very ecologically balanced. And people knew that if you took care of the land, you had healthier everything. Um, how that knowledge was lost is surprising to me, but it was. So there was a much sort of longer term view taken. Much longer term. And it wasn't in like, but then, you know, you, you go through through how the market crashed around cattle and people got hard up and it was, they needed money now. And, you know, the, as everything changed with that ranching changed and then with technology and the fact that it wasn't done on horseback much anymore and you know there's a whole other this new ranching with with the ease of technology which still doesn't make ranching easy but it makes it easier than it was um is it's it's relearning how to find that ecological balance and um a lot of these ranches went through you know, changing of family hands. Cause if you're in a family ranch and your kid doesn't want to ranch, it goes away. Yeah. Um, so and, eventually you're old and you sell it. Yeah. And, and then that knowledge is lost, you know, the, the knowledge of like how to cycle pastures or where, you know, where the cows hang out in the fall and you know, that that's all lost and has to be relearned either by a, a new owner who is often not from a ranching background um, or from someone who is from a ranching background, but it's still a learning process. And so I grew, you know, I mean, my dad was active, not just in the ranching world. Um, when we were in California, Nestle uh, tried to build a million square foot water bottling plant on the McLeod River okay. within, uh, and the McLeod City Council signed a uh, 
hundred-year contract for an unlimited draw on groundwater. And unlimited. Unlimited. And because it was just a, it was a depressed community that was looking for something to so boost they were it. looking for an economic boost. Yeah, yeah. and um, Dad and a couple other uh, he's a big fly fisherman, and a couple of his fly Man fishing buddies got wind of it, and actually, uh, it was a nine-year fight, and they beat Nestle. They got out. They beat him. That's unreal. And it was a, and I was you know, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. Um, so, so growing up and didn't have a concept really how amazing that was that my dad was part of that and did that. Um, and Took now looking back, wow. yeah. And, and one, you know, and, and, and that was just normal for me. And now looking back and, and doing the job that I do now, which is a lot of work similar to that, but, um, he, you know, he did it on a volunteer basis. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, it's humbling to be from folks like that. The, the amazing thing is there, and this is something we talk about quite a bit is that, whatever you think of hunting and fishing from the outside, if you don't partake in it, it requires a vested interest in the thing, you know, whether it be the species or the river system, for people to do things like that, you know, to dedicate a massive part of their life to make a difference. You know, he was a fisherman and that was his, that was his in, that was his vested interest. There are a lot of people who like looking at rivers or walking along rivers, but are they going to put nine years of their life aside to take the good fight? if they don't have a real vested interest in sort of utilizing that resource? And he, Probably not. It, I mean, it, yeah. I mean, it, it, he just loved that area. And, you know, the McLeod River is a blue ribbon trout river. I've it's even amazing. heard of it, yeah. It's, um, and I, the ranch that we were managing was right on the banks of the McLeod River. It was beautiful. And uh, we had a bunch of really beautiful creeks that had been worn down by stock and just um, not uh, – well banked and dad went and I think it was 13 miles of the Squaw Creek that he rebuilt the stream bed for fish habitat and stuff like on the ranch so it was very like but that was that was part of his job you know he he has the folks that bought these ranches he got their buy-in you know to like spend the money to do this to bring these places back and um, I think that was what was so cool is it wasn't just you know dad going and doing it, he, he brought it to the attention of the folks that owned this place and they, they had buy-in with it. Um, yeah, so the private owners were, mm -hmm. they were alongside. Yep, yep. So and they not were, necessarily doing like the work, but they were providing the funding to allow this to happen. Yeah, and so you'd have to go and be like, I want to do this project that's rebuilding 13 miles of stream bed. Which costs money. Which costs a lot of and money. Time, yeah. And to get them to like understand it, luckily the people that own the place in um, uh, McLeod were very big fly fishermen as well. Okay. So that was, an easy, interest, yeah. that was an easy sell for, I think, Dad to do. That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, we do. We have very similar programs uh, at home on the Fisheries Trust that I'm on, uh, which is a, a huge series of river systems. But a lot of that is collab. Well, I mean, almost all of it is collaborating with private landowners to do exactly that sort of thing, where you have uh, unfenced river edges, which have just they're just completely eroded and falling into the the riverbank, silting up into the riverbed, silting up uh, spawning beds just from cattle. Yeah, so it's about yeah. talking to them, working out, finding bits of funding from somewhere, tying it in with you know, private funding as well, and trying to find these uh, these synergies of interest so that the overall ecosystem can be improved. Well, and and it know, can be a hard fight sometimes because not, not every landowner 
is really invested in it that much. They're looking at their Excel spreadsheet in the bottom line. line. Yeah, you know, but most of them are, you know, and uh, where a lot of the work I do in Wyoming right now is around migration corridors. So we have these long, uh, you know, 150 mile migrations that mule deer are doing and we're all the science is coming out about it. And, and it's an, not an instinctual migration. It's a taut one. So these animals, it's led by the sort of matriarchal doe of the family herd. And she has this inherent knowledge that she learned from her mother and passes that down. And so uh, you imagine like if, if we're disturbing these, it doesn't take long to lose a migration because you lose the knowledge real quick. It's not instinctual. Um, you know, if you transplant a deer somewhere else, it's not like they just know to like head north. Um, and uh, they, they're following this green up, but a lot of what we're finding is these migration corridors are presenting a, a land management uh nightmare right now because they're across multiple land because owners. it's public land state land private land uh you know townships it's all this like very confusing people are trying to figure out how do we protect this without uh you know stepping on other folks toes and the private landowners have been absolutely integral in it because they they are the reason most of these migrations still exist because they have these large tracts of land that they haven't developed and they haven't broken up and it's stayed in this like big long you know i think they said nearly 40% of the migration is private land. I could be wrong on that. I'll have to check that number. But it's a lot of this migration route is private. And um, a lot of the folks in the ranches around this, you know, I think they ranching unintendedly got, I think, a bad rap in this big public lands push that happened I was just going to say that to you, that what you've just said there is not the perception that I would say the rest of the world has mm-hmm. uh, about the view in North America on private lands. Yeah, the, the perception is that you guys all think it's terrible. Yeah, and the perception, and I think you know, I think there's a lot of tr- like truth in that. I think a lot of folks don't understand um, private land and and how the private land uh, owners have worked for a long time in the conservation. Obviously, it's not everyone. There's a f- yeah, just there's like bad there's, apples just like in everything. Bad people who hunt, yeah, you know, or in any walk of life, exactly. But there are folks that have been on the ground and been doing this and and have have been the reason that we have a lot of these things still in place. Um, and, and it's been a sort of sad unintended con- con- uh, consequence from the amazing public land push and this, you know, we are very lucky that we have this and we talk about it a lot, but I think this, this, uh, recognition of the private landowner would, uh, go a long way into making sure that our conservation work is accepted at the uh, legislative and policy level too in mm. states kind like of Wyoming and private landowners that's certainly yeah. how i perceive it i mean i know it to be incorrect mm-hmm. that perception but i just think from, but it's a true one yeah that's what that's the view from the outside yeah and it's I, it's a sad one that that has changed like that because it's not the case i think when you really get on the ground and you see um who's doing the work and and they've been at the table a lot longer mm. than the public land crowd so we, we kind of skipped ahead a bit. So explain what it is that you do now. You're, you're giving us insights, but what what is your your day to day? So my page... it's obviously not just bow hunting and being interested in these things. Oh, someday that'll be the case. You, you wish it could. Be. Um, I, my paid job is uh, for the Wyoming Wildlife Federation, and so uh, it's the oldest uh, hunting and angling conservation group in the state of Wyoming. We're 82 years old. Um, been around since 1937, and uh, we're not a species specific um, and and less of a boots on the ground organization. We are at the 
very nuanced and wonky level of policy and laws and resource management plans, like on the ground management with public land agencies. And um, most of my work is the legislative stuff. So I am their lobbyist. I spend the entire state legislative session um, as one of the only hunters in the state of Wyoming voices wow. down there. That's a big responsibility. Lobbying um, for wildlife and, and anything that would be remotely interesting um, or touch on anything that hunters or anglers would care about. So that goes, you know, everything to wildlife crossings and migration corridors to re like regulations and the authority for the Wyoming Game and Fish Department to make decisions on their own. And um, it's a, you know... There's maybe six of us down there that are working any angle of conservation. There's like a lot of great um, non-hunting organizations that are down there as well. And you're, but you I'm work one of in the collaboration with them? Sometimes, Sometimes. When we, yeah. Where are uh, there synergies? Yeah. You know, you find that, Wyoming, is that tough? Is there, is there a, are they, are they willing to work alongside people who kill stuff? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're amazing. That's um, not a problem The here. problem is, is that to associate with a quote unquote green group in the state of Wyoming is political suicide at the uh, legislature. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, you can't, you know, I may agree with a lot of what folks are saying from different groups. Um, but hunters and anglers are perceived conservative and Wyoming is a very, very, I mean, we're, we are the Trump state. We are very red and, um, it's a very Republican legislature and we, have power down there because as hunters we are perceived very conservative um, and to help make sure that that stays there we don't regardless of how much we agree with them we very rarely partner with uh, conservation groups that have a more liberal leaning and um, it's frustrating that that is a game a that shame, you have to I would play but, but I mean that I understand the politics of it yeah and we have similar parallels at home mm -hmm. uh, where there might be groups or individuals who for the most part, might disagree with the hunting or fishing side, you know, whatever it might be. But every now and then they come up with something like, well, there's no reason why we can't support that. Yeah. Because we totally agree, you know, declines of songbirds or whatever, you know, something mm -hmm. that's nothing to do with hunting, uh, but might have implications to do with land use and agriculture. And there's no reason why we can't support doing a better job of conserving these species, but they won't do it. Yeah. Because yesterday that person or that group is doing something which is really damaging to the hunting space. But I, I am of the opinion that, well, can you imagine how off guard they would be? Yeah. Like, we want to help you on this because, yeah, we might disagree on many things, but we agree on this. We actually, that's happening right now in Wyoming and it's happening around wildlife crossings. Okay. Uh, Wyoming hits a huge amount of deer, antelope and elk on our roads with cars. And it is a public safety issue. It is a conservation issue. It's a hunter and angler issue. Everybody in Wyoming has experienced hitting something on the road, you know, and it's, and the problem here is like, okay, well we, we have the answer and it's these uh, it's whether it's a land bridge or it's underpasses or it's fencing. Um, the problem is, is that, I mean, we even have a task force that's picked out the 40 areas in the state of Wyoming that are the most uh, problematic right now. And so we have a, a priority list of 10. And, and to look at that, the problem is, is the price tag is if we wanted to do all of that, it's $256 million just to build it, not even just to maintain, yeah. you know, but for 10 capital, projects. Initial capital investment. 
And so this is a problem where everybody's like, yeah, we agree this is a problem. Like we're all on the same page. I mean, this is like oil and gas is standing next to conservation is standing next to hunting and angling is standing next to uh, the ag community saying we agree and this is a problem. But the solution is we have to find more money in a boom and bust economy and Wyoming is not in the boom right now. Um, and so the, it's a funding issue, but it, it is like, a, it's so refreshing. And we all in the office love when we get to work on crossings because we're like, yay, we get to agree with everyone and we yes. don't have to fight people. <laughs> so if there's any Patreon supporters out there with an extra $256 million, this would be a good... Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure we'll find it. Maybe probably give us a week <laughs> after this podcast goes out. <laughs> well, I think we're going to put this podcast out next week. Yeah. So we'll uh, yeah. Who knows? by end of the month, we should yeah. sort that. Well, uh, that'll be easy. <laughs> Wait, but then I need something else that we all agree on. So it it does give me like the light at the end of the tunnel. But yeah, you know, um, it's an amazing thing how often you have to battle for things that for me feel uh, very inherent. Like, yeah, this is too precious to lose. But you have to explain that to someone that doesn't see eye to eye with you. And um, sometimes finding that middle ground is uh, not easy. So if publicly you can't, uh, on certain topics, you can't be seen to supporting the sort of environmental green left behind the scenes you're i mean you probably you know these people because you're sitting in meetings with them all the time are you able to have more pragmatic conversations with them behind the scenes like not officially oh absolutely one of my best friends works and for essentially what my job capacity is but for an organization that's a non-hunting organization Mm. she is a hunter (laughs) right yeah um and and she's amazing and you know i think everybody everybody gets along. It's, it's just um, understanding the strategy that works at the uh, political level, but everyone's friends, you know, even like we all get out of a meeting and go have like likely one too many beers together <laughs> afterwards. That's when most so, problems are solved. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing, you know, uh, but it is legislatively, it's an interesting game you have to play. It's, it's, it seems it's such a shame that you know, clearly, without the the political implications over and above that, it seems like a lot of these problems could be yeah could be solved much more easily if you didn't have to be concerned about that. Well, and it's the willingness to listen. Um, I think a lot of us we get so. I mean, you work when you work in conservation, you're so used to losing. Yeah, you know, it's just it's not that's a, a game. That's a sad statement. Isn't it, it is. It's a very sad statement. But you are you're just used to not. And so you end up drawing lines in the sand right out of the gate, like not an inch. I will not budge, you know, it's, it's wilderness or nothing or this or nothing. And the problem is that's not a conversation that is uh, conducive to having a solve, being solved. Yeah, it can't move in any it direction. It can't move yeah. in any direction. So you have these like, you know, folks that are very passionate about what they do that go out and draw a line in the sand and then you know you have the other side of the argument which is valid which is you know I I always look at conservation conservation is a long-term discussion conservation is looking at 500 years from now the problem is is what we're up against is short term what we're up against is the do I have food on my table do I have a job can I send my kids to college like do I have a roof over my head and to do that, I need the oil and gas industry in the state of Wyoming, or I need this. And 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 then your politics turn around just the same as most countries in the world. And one so democratic is so fast, it's four or five years or whatever exactly. it is. So there's your short-term short term. view, whereas you need exactly, we say and this all the time, term, it's, it's hundreds like, of years. Yeah, and you're sitting here like, I can't argue with your need to have food on the table. I understand that. And you need to have a job and the state needs to have an economy and our schools need funding. You know, all this, all these like very 
right in our face issues. The, the, the thing is, is that it's hard to talk about the long-term view that, um, you know, without conservation, we won't be around in 500 years to have these in-your-face issues. And so to have that like long-term versus short-term discussion and be able to move the needle at all in the long-term way, because you're like having to have this conversation about like, are you, do you have food on your table? Can you send your kids to school? Um, that's a really tough one to like be able to navigate and find any kind of ground on. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's, it's a global problem though. <laughs> yeah. Not, not, not just, it's a it's a, this cultural separation of like um I always feel like I come out of hunting season I'm like oh man I've been in the real world for a while because I've been like my primary concerns was like you know I was out was I safe did I have food was I sleeping at night and then I come back into the like, cultural world I'm like oh yeah bills and things <laughs> <laughs> adulting yeah adulting <laughs> Well, I don't, Baron. I don't know if you had it on your list, but I definitely want you to talk a little bit about Artemis and, and yeah. what that is, and how that started, and what people should know about it. Yeah. So Artemis um, is a women's hunting and angling uh, initiative or program that is housed underneath the National Wildlife Federation. But it came about um, because the National Wildlife Federation, like I think, for the first time in most hunting and angling uh, groups, saw that they needed to put their money where their mouth was when they were talking about diversity. I mean, hunting is predominantly white and male. <laughs> I think that's something to pretty blatantly be able to say. Um, and women's involvement in hunting has been on an uptick, but it's only going to get to a certain point before I think it peters off if they we don't start seeing role models or folks that are out there leading and talking about this. Because until it's normalized it's always going to be a standalone. You know, we're always going to be like, oh my gosh, you're a woman and you're a hunter. And, and, and it shouldn't really be a discussion point. It shouldn't be a discussion. It should, should, be, just it should like just be like, oh yeah, yeah. you hunt. Um, and, and I, Artemis came about in this sense of like wanting to model that normalization and, and having women that were willing to lead in the conservation space and lead in the hunting space and lead in the industry space and not having those three separate, but having those three be like a synonymous thought, like hunting should not be uh, looked at as a right. Hunting is a privilege and we can lose it if we don't take care of what we're, you know, uh, doing, whether it's how we're perceived to the non-hunting public to how we take care of our resources um, in the conservation realm. And uh, the female voice is so different right now in the industry and resonates differently. Um, than the male voice just because it's a different, it's a new voice. You know, diversity in a topic strengthens a topic. So the more voices you have speaking, saying something essentially the same, but in different ways, the more people you're going to have that listen and understand. Um, and so we wanted to make this n normalization of female leadership um, and, and in the conservation space and, and Artemis is sort of what happened out of that. And, you know, it's named after the Greek goddess of the of hunt. Course, yeah. um, but what I love about her and what uh, we found out later is, you know, she's the goddess of birth and the goddess of death and um, has this very like yin and yang. And I love that representation when you start talking about hunting because um, to talk about the life that goes into hunting is the conservation discussion and then the hunting is the killing discussion and it's got both um but it was it's been 
they, uh, the National Wildlife Federation had reached out to me and I was working at the Wyoming Wildlife Federation at that time. And they um, asked if I was willing to help them create this and come on. And um, I was, you know, a phone call that changed my life. <laughs> so how long ago was that? Four years, three years, three and okay. a half years about. Yeah. So you, you, that was a creation from scratch, just from concept. Yes. So, yeah. what, so what does it look like today? Like who, who's involved in it? What do you, what do you do? Um, so I, we hired our first paid staff member, um, Marsha Brownlee. She lives up in Missoula, Montana and is quite like one of the most amazing women. She, she embodies what we wanted Artemis to be. And it was amazing that we found her and she was willing to work for us. Um, but now I have stepped back into more of an advisory board and, uh, I get to just sit back and watch this grow. Um, you know, it, it to, have remember those initial discussions on the phone and being like, what do I want to see out of this? And, and, um, what do you wish it would become? And it was, you know, now I'm getting to see what it has become, which is women are, are calling from around the country and even out of the country to want to be a part of this and to be ambassadors. And I am, to, to learn more and to do more and, and are reaching out on whether it's how to talk to your, uh, decision makers at the policy level to, um, you know, removing fence or, or boots on the ground kind of things. And, uh, I think women have been looking for a place to put this energy and no hunting group has marketed to them. You know, you look at all these amazing groups that are doing all this great work, but until recently, all of their materials are like male centric, and, and so when you're speaking to the man, the man is going to be the one that responds to it. And the woman, yeah, you know, we might come along or, but when you don't feel included in a conversation, it's hard to like put a bunch of uh, effort into it. And when Artemis came out, um, Outside Online did a story on us and it was like someone turned on a fire hose and we were holding the end going, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was amazing. And it's just has not slacked off. It's just been this, I mean, the fire hose is still turned on and, and we're still figuring out how to like wrangle all of this incredible interest. Cause like women are coming out of the woodworks going, this is amazing. I want to do more. See for me beyond the, uh, it being a platform for females within this outdoor space, mm -hmm. The thing that grabs me most about this conversation is this isn't just – it's not just a club where women come together and go hunting or, you know, talk mm -hmm. hunting or whatever. You're actually doing stuff. Our first you know, thing we is, did this, is Artemis. This is about action on the ground. Yeah, our it's first – It's not just about hunting. Our first action was a trip to D.C. Um, the first thing we ever did as a, like, cohesive group was go to D.C. and lobby on some bills that were there. That's incredible. So for our UK listeners, I think we got something <laughs> yeah. to learn. Washington DC, the capital yeah. of the yeah. US, yeah, yeah. Um, and so you know, obviously people are familiar with the term lobby, but in this case, what what does that actually mean? What were you guys? We so we flew there and we sat down with our congressmen and senators, so the decision makers, and we were asking for certain votes on bills. Um, some of them are bills that are still being worked, like the Recovering America's Wildlife Act and things that are coming through. Um, but we were there on behalf of working on public lands and making sure they understood the value of public lands to hunters, um, especially in the access side uh, in the West, and then um, to funding for wildlife agencies and, and just at, sitting down with them. And one, I think many of our decision makers were shocked that there were women in the room that like 
were talking hunting to them. Um, that was, I think, a new experience for many of them, except for maybe the Wyoming guys, because they're used to everyone hunting in the state. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you know, whether it was the Pennsylvania senator or or a senator from Oregon, um, you know, and sitting down and be like, hey, this is important. And we had, I think it was six women that came and it was from all Western states, but um, it was pretty I, I was proud that that was the first thing we did because I didn't want it to just be a club where women got together, which is nice that the networking has come from that, but it's been conservation and action first. And it's not, I don't ever want it to come off as a like, uh, man hating club. It's always that's just the, been, that's not yeah. what, I, what I'm feeling from that. But, but we've always been very like, we, we, we have some wonderful men that have been part of Artemis. Oh, we call them our Artemen. <laughs> that's great. Um, but but they're like, I mean, it's it's the recognition that like this is just a place, you know, to 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 support women and to put women at the forefront. It doesn't mean it's only women. Well, and something we talked about was, you know, a lot of times with modern huntsmen, we're trying to make hunting approachable for people who don't have a point of access. And so, in your case, right, there's a lot of women who might have interest in it, but there's not, there has never been an access point for them to get interested in it. So the fact that you've now been such a huge part of creating that, that kind of makes sense with the fire hose metaphor there. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it was amazing. And I, um, I've had the privilege to hunt with so many new women hunters in the last three years that have never gone out and been able to take women out that have never been. And, um, you know, I was very lucky. I, I learned to hunt and I'm an adult onset hunter, so I didn't grow up hunting, but I learned to hunt about 10 years ago and I had a great mentor, but I think a lot of that's, that's unique. Um, I think mentorship, um, and especially for women has been difficult to come by. Um, one, cause it's not always comfortable for a woman to learn from a man, especially if it's a significant other that just is, you just don't do that. <laughs> it's a difficult one. That's grounds for divorce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then there's a stigma around it going out if it's not your significant other. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. and so, uh, but it's been really t- to open that door and to see women taking women. I've taken men out that they've never been hunting it's just it's opening a new door and it's just a different access point and it's yeah. been really um amazing to have happen yeah that's one thing i've learned through this issue is most of the women like jess out here are way more experienced than you and i in yeah. terms of out in the field just the stuff they yeah i was listening to the conversations last night i was just like i'm just i got nothing to input here i'm just gonna no listen to what you <laughs> that's i that's been the experience of this whole thing is that they just have so many amazing experiences and things to share that, you know, you meet someone like Jess and your first guess would not be, oh, did you just come back from a crazy backcountry <laughs> DIY sheep hunt in, was it Alaska or was it Canada? Or, it was the Northwest ter- Territories of Canada. It was guided, um, but it was, yeah, 20 days in the Northwest Territories of Canada. That's a long hunt. Sheep country. It was probably 12 days of hunting and three and a half days on either side of travel because it's so far north. Yeah. <laughs> what, was it, what was it like? Were you successful? Uh, we were. We got a dull sheep. Um, it was unbelievable. My friend Bridget, who I went with, had the sheep tag and shot the sheep. And it was country you just would not – I still am struggling to find words around. I wrote a piece on it on this up, uh, so the our Bridget and I wrote a piece. It's our field journal um, in this – Modern Huntsman Volume Four. So the so story. So this is a teaser now. Yeah. So and and because my sister said this last night, you know, when you brought she she brought some doll sheep for us, and 
my sister made this face like, well, what do you, like a sheep? So for someone who maybe isn't familiar with the species, it's not a domestic sheep. Give us a little bit of background on what this animal is, where it lives, and how you got to get to it. So so uh, the, the scientific name is Ovis Dolly Dolly, which I love. I think it's one of the most beautiful scientific names out there. Um, and it's, I mean, it is of a sheep species, yes. Um, but these are wild sheep. They're called thin horns. So you have like a bighorn sheep, um, in the American West and then thin horns. And then you have the longer horn ones, which I don't know what they fall under. I think they're Argali, um, and the European side. And, uh, Ovis Dolly Dolly is a white sheep that lives at the top parts of mountains in Canada and, uh, Alaska. And they, they are just, uh, so of that place. If you can imagine a sheep that is living on top of a castle of rocks with maybe six blades of grass, howling wind, and winters that are six months long. Um, like nothing should live up there. Nothing <laughs> should live up there, but they do, and they thrive, and they're athletes. These That was what blew me away, is these sheep, you know, are scaling things that takes humans, you know, with thumbs and hands, <laughs> ropes to get up. Yeah. Um, and these sheep just, like, it's bop insane. on up there. And it's it was, uh, you know... We'd start at the bottom um, of these mountains and it'd be, you know, 3,000 feet and we'd end up at the top at, you know, six, five, seven, five, you know, and it, and it was just every day of climbing mountains with trekking poles and footing that um, turns your stomach. I, I mean, there was many hikes where I like had to stop in the middle and talk myself out of a little bit of panic because of how bad the footing was. And then just keep going. Um, but it was... It's only a few steps away from dying. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's one step. <laughs> one step away from dying. <laughs> one, one bad step. And that was never far from my, my, my thought process. But uh, it, sheep hunting is such a stigma. You know, American hunters, and I don't know if this is the case in the UK too, but it's, it's such a like, it's the hunt. Doll sheep hunting is like the one where people are like, oh, like that's the badass hunt. And is this because of the, the physical effort I that's think required? It's because right? of where they're at. And I thought about that because like they're great, they're amazing animals. Um, but had we not shot a sheep on this hunt, I I don't know that I would feel any differently about how successful and epic and amazing that hunt was. And it was the landscape. I actually asked you, my, my question was actually quite shit because was it, was it successful? And when I asked you that question, I was meaning, did you kill something? But as we often have the discussion, success, it can be defined in so many ways. And I know exactly what you're talking about because so many of the hunts that I go on, I'm not, I don't even have a gun with me. I'm there with other people. Like, yeah. I feel like you were there. Yeah. And, and I the had success a, is in the experience. It was amazing. I had a, a mountain caribou tag, which was equally as crazy because they end up in the same place as doll sheep do. Um, and I mountain didn't think caribou. caribou went that high. <laughs> I didn't wow. either until I was up there and we were skinning the sheep and I was like, that's caribou poop. Like they're, oh, they're way, they go, these caribou go into many of the places the sheep do. Are they a different subspecies to the, the more lowland? Caribou? Yeah. So they're, they mountain, I think there's mountain caribou, there's barren ground, there's tundra, there's woodland and the mountain caribou are the largest of the species. Um, and they are well-named. They are mountain dwelling animals and they were, I mean, right at the top of the sheep, there's caribou trails all over. And, um, I, Bridget went with a rifle and I went with a bow. And so I was, uh, attempting to archery hunt a, a mountain caribou. That's hardcore. Um, it was amazing. I got very close, but did not connect. Um, but it was again, like I was 20 yards from a mountain caribou that was like looking me in the eye and I had never seen a caribou before. And it was every like small 
part of my brain was exploding at that point. So, what an incredible experience! It's a it's a part of the world that I've always wanted to go. Yeah, and it, on those on those hunts, mainly because of the places, it gives you purpose to go to places that you would otherwise never go. I I never thought um, I never thought I would be able to go. I like I didn't even know enough about. It was so out of the realm of possibility because of price of hunt, like how costly it is to get there. The hunts cost a lot that it was not in the realm of possibility for me to go. So I never thought about it and I never wanted to like really, it was like a bucket list thing where like, oh yeah, I also want a pink unicorn, you know, like. <laughs> is that, that also on of, your bucket list? <laughs> now it is. Talk, talk to Becca Fruit about that. Um, but uh, yeah, right. Uh, but this, this hunt was a gift. Oh, wow. um, a friend of mine won this at the sh a sheep show. So a, a mm -hmm. big convention around wild sheep and won it and a $40 raffle ticket. What? And it was a hunt for two people. And uh, I had not met her when she won this hunt. And a year later, I met her and we connected over um, Artemis and talking about women in these spaces. And I told a story about losing an elk. Um, and I told it in a public space. And we talked about like what that was like. And she, two weeks later, uh, she got down on one knee with a bullet in her hand <laughs> and asked me to go on this hunt That's with her. That's amazing. And she was not a hunter at that point. She had not, she, a totally new hunter and um, ended up not being able to go. And so then I got to get down on one knee with a bullet in my hand and ask Bridget, <laughs> who ended up going with me to go. And it was this story of like women gifting women these yeah. unbelievable hunts. And it was a really... Uh, That's really special. It was a very special trip. And, and again, wildly out of the realm of possibility had it not been gifted. I don't think that would go over so well if that was a guy doing that, <laughs> getting down on and handing a woman a bullet. What the hell is this? Anyways, that's that's so cool. I had you didn't you didn't tell me that the that's, photos that's cool around it. Um, Paul Kemper was actually there. Okay, and yeah. he was with us when Caitlin did that, and she he has maybe thirty photos of me going from surprise to like full meltdown and like, <laughs> I think it's like I have a I have one one photo where I'm smiling and laughing and all the rest are like my head's between my knees and I'm crying so I'm like, there's no way this is real um but yeah it's there there are photos of that but uh the Instagram conversation around that people it, it really went to show how people don't actually read the comments yeah because the photo I put up was one of Caitlin down on one knee and like me with a surprised face okay and I can see where this is going it was very uh, I was there was a couple times where we had to get him like guys read the story yeah like, <laughs> yeah oh, I say that quite a bit yeah yeah but now that you've done it you're gonna you're gonna have a big problem it's because awful. you're going to have to go back. I have to go back. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Yep. This is what I say to like, <laughs> the people who I take hunting in Africa for the first time. So, that my warning to this experience is that once you go, you you're go forever going to want to go yeah, back, and absolutely. you will be, you will go to it, crazy ends to make you. that happen. Yeah, I'm yeah. trying to figure out like how many body parts I can sell and still go up <laughs> yeah. there. You still got four limbs. Them. I'm looking yeah. at you right now. I know, yeah. right? You yeah. only need. <laughs> I don't know. Like one, well, you can lose an arm to climb the mountain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the goats don't have it. You don't need it. Yeah, exactly. Or the <laughs> sheep. Yeah, trade them out for hooves. You probably are better in that country. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I've, I'm, have you act, even started the thought process of how you might get back there? Oh, I was lots like, of forty dollar raffle tags. I was writing down as I was leaving, like thoughts of like, um, you know. A, a sh the sheep hunt was amazing and and I think it's something that um will stick with me forever what I want to do is I want to go back and caribou hunt um and I want to do it with a bow and I want to go get a large like good representation of a species bull mountain caribou and I just 
I became obsessed with how like the, the caribou really are the lifeblood of that place. Like the sheep are amazing. They're at the tops of these mountains. The caribou are all over and the trails are these veins through this landscape and the caribou are just this like thriving life pulse through this whole place. And they're bizarre. They are not like any deer species that I have ever hunted. And so it was a completely different um, hunt. It was an entirely different species and I'm wildly obsessed with them right now. So, so how does the, uh, for, for people who don't, who are not in North America, who don't understand how the, the system works for being able to go and hunt those animals. H- how does the tag system work? How does that, okay, this was a raffle, but uh, like, how does the availability of those animals work? Um, well, and, and admittedly, this is, uh, I'm still learning this because we were in Canada, which was different okay, from yeah. the American wildlife management system. But um, as I understand it, the, the outfitters have these uh, leases of, of places that they're allowed to hunt. And the outfitter that we were with, the Gainer River Outfitters, which by the way, were amazing, um, have total control over what there is underneath their, you know, and in their lease. And so, so is it, is it uh, owned by the government, but on long lease on like a 10 year lease or whatever by the outfitter? That this is where I need to learn. Cause I'm not positive it's owned by the government. It may be tribal. Oh, okay. I'm but not, it is a lease. It is a lease. Okay. Um, and uh, the, outfitter then has total control of the wildlife within the borders of that lease. Um, and so he can choose how many tags and he, and, and what it is, the government sends the price, the outfitter doesn't, but the outfitter chooses like how much. And so as we understand it, many of the outfits around us are outfits that give, uh, 40 something sheep tags. Gainer River gave 18 like they're very conservative with it, and Harold Grindy, who's the the outfitter of, with Gaina River, is um, this phenomenal man who's very much part of that space. And he asks, you know, uh, in the Northwest Territories, a legal ram is three quarter curl, so a horn that goes around three quarters of a circle. Um, what Harold would like, rather than shooting the three quarter curl, was shooting a ten years or older ram because that's um, sort of at the end of a sheep's lifespan. It's had uh, ample time to be in its prime of breeding and to sort of uh, spread its genetics and give back. And um, so he so asked, actually counting rings with, yeah. with a scope. Oh yeah. Very yeah, much yeah. counting. We rings. did that with tar and it's, it's if that's crazy. your mindset, it's like, Forget about the size. Yeah. Who gives a shit about the size? It's the How age. old is it? Yeah. Because that's what truly is important. So I love that. And yeah, and he, you know, he asked that and Bridget and I, you know, and, and obviously like these are expensive hunts when they're not gifted. So people are paying a lot of money to be up there. Um, and, and so if they don't get a sheep towards the end, I think they get a little more relaxed with it. But, uh, you know, Bridget and I, when we were up there, we're very conscious of this being a gifted hunt and, and we're very wanted to follow those rules and, and make sure. And we ended up shooting a 12 year old, which was really amazing. It wasn't the oldest sheep they took that. And year. it feels awesome. That's very, it's a very similar circumstance to the tar hunt that I did in mm-hmm. New Zealand. And there, I mean, in, in New Zealand, as I've talked about in this podcast, I mean, they don't really give a shit about the animals there because they're all seen as pests. It's not like here in North America where they're, you know, held in high esteem. But the outfitter that I was with had the same mindset. So even though we were on public land and anyone could come in there and do whatever the hell they liked there because it wasn't even like he was leasing the block. We mm-hmm. just flew in like anybody else could do. His thing was the age of old bull tars. Yeah. And it's, it's so because cool just when like you get you said, that. It's like yeah. they're at the, the one that I shot probably wouldn't have made the rest of the winter because he was like skin and bones. This one, he was very, he might have been through another winter in him, but he was old and we had another 10-year-old ram taken that trip that um, a 15-year-old girl shot. 
she, uh, she was amazing. And uh, the t- her sheep, the 10-year-old, had no teeth on his left side. Like, oh, even totally worn down. Like, not lost. Like, just totally uh, smoothed down. And um, it was a really interesting skull to look at um, when everything was fleshed out. But, you know, like, where were we at? I think they said we were, I mean, we were in the hundreds of miles from a road. And so this was, like, a place where technically if you're a resident of the Northwest Territories, you could go hunt in there if you had a sheep tag. Okay. Um, but you're, but how do you get but there? How do you get there? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and we, we flew into Norman Wells, um, Canada in the Northwest Territories. And then we took a float plane for 45 minutes to base camp and then base camp. I think, um, we, we were on a horseback hunt. So we rode horses on a pack string and the first day was maybe 13 miles away from base camp. And then, we just got progressively further and further away. And then we took a super cub back at the end of the hunt. And that was a 45 minute super cub flight to get to base camp. And then a 45 minute flight, like on a float plane back to, you know, quote unquote civilization, which is Norman Wells. That's like for people at home that, yeah, that's basically like Edinburgh to London. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. the same like yeah. the time you send the plane. And, and it's, it's the, it was, um, I, the thing I kept saying, and I actually think I, we state this in the, in the piece is how, quaint i our american version of wild was um you know because i I'm, I'm in wyoming i grew up in wyoming i'm in this place that has the the place with the least roads and you can get the furthest from roads in the lower 48 you know we have yellowstone national park i mean wyoming is the hashtag wild um in a very rural state and i was up in canada going wow this is this we is had this wild. so wrong <laughs> yeah yeah I, this is proper wild yeah, yeah. Oh, that was an eye opener, and it and it's not a critique of our wild and in, in, in it's just Wyoming. the reality of the place. It, yeah. And it sure made you go like realize how precious those like last spaces were. Mm. You know, you haven't. This isn't a word that you've mentioned during this conversation, but uh, the reason I'm going to bring it up is because it's very much a discussion that's happening at home right now, and the sort of the misunderstanding of what that means. I mean, you've been talking about very old, selecting very old animals. And uh, okay, with, with sheep, that might mean that they're worn down, so they might not. Be, they might have been slightly longer a couple of years before. But it's old animals with big headgear, which most people would say is a trophy That's hunt, right? But everything that you've explained so far, I would hope to even someone who uh, doesn't come from the hunting space would understand why that's what you're selecting from what you've said. And I, yet at home, like we're we're having the discussion right now at, at a government level of um you know completely banning trophy imports trophy in inverted commas import they don't actually know what that means <laughs> well and i think that's always been my wyoming's even having that discussion of like talking about what does trophy mean um because because i think that's our first problem is that trophy has many many different definitions and it depends on who's using the word that it means something different um you know i think if you looked at strictly like the definition of trophy hunting i would absolutely fall under that because i do hunt the older animals and I don't do it for the headgear it's they happen to have larger headgear most of the time but it's because with a bow the the kind of hunting that I really love doing is is finding an animal that knows its space and has been on the ground and is so wildly smart that it beats me most times I I like the fact that I come out of archery season having not shot something sometimes because I just had my tail handed to me by an old mule deer um, but that, that hunt and, and when you do connect it, you've, you've, uh, given that animal every chance to beat you. You've, that animal has, um, 
outsmarted you at just about every turn. It defines fair chase. And it defines fair chase for me. And, 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 um, sure. That means sometimes I don't get meat in the freezer, but I also get to spend 30 days outside in September and that's <laughs> never something that's bad. Yeah. Um, but that, but it does fall under trophy in the sense of like, I like to hunt the larger animals, but it's mainly because they've been around longer and they're far smarter on the ground. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people's issue with it is what it means and the reasons why like why are why are you after that animal and the the differences between like north america and europe these areas but you can maybe correct me if i'm wrong i wouldn't imagine they're they're not going up and culling a bunch of females in the no, 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 that doesn't exist. Whereas at home, they do it, give out U tags, but it's not a, a pra- it's not a culling practice. It's not a culling yeah. practice. Okay, so it's not really population no, control. No, not at all. Yeah. Whereas at home, we're shooting shed loads of deer, mm-hmm. uh, mainly females, after the stag season or after the male season for population control. And if we you're have shooting a female with a bow, you're a much better bow hunter than people that are shooting the big males because big males are kind of dumb. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the same as, it's the same as shooting stags. <laughs> it's the same as shooting stags. Like when, shooting you're stag sh- when you're shooting them in mating season, yeah, yeah. you're like, this was, I called you. <laughs> yeah. You can shoot a cow elk or, or a, yeah. a, a female deer of any kind in any species with a bow. You had a hunt. <laughs> but the, the mindset as to to, to why... Those are the kind of animals that are be taken by people who hunt. I don't think it doesn't translate well in, into Europe because people don't really understand it. But those are exactly the kind of animals that you would want to take up because they don't have much impact on the population. But then I suppose some people c- could argue that, okay, well, why don't you just leave them all alone? Yeah. Yeah, okay, that old animal will die next year, but that's nature. Yeah, I mean... Why do you need hunters in those spaces? I mean, why do you need any predator? And it's not for management, it's for the wholeness of an ecosystem. And I think humanity has exempt ourselves from the laws of nature for so long. Like we we're don't observers. Look, we're observers. We're stewards of the land, which really drives me nuts. I, can't, we're, I think that removes our, uh, our responsibility to be part of the land. And, and, and until we start seeing ourselves as part of the equation and not just as something that affects the equation... Um, I think we're going to have this like separation issue, but like, you know, I, I, the reason that hunting works for me is not just like the time out. It's the only time in my life that I feel like I belong in a place mm-hmm. yeah, because I'm part that. of something, you know, you're part of a food chain and, and sometimes that means failure, like completing that food chain. But, you know, just as the coyote or the wolf sometimes misses their mark, um, so do hunters. And, and I think just seeing yourself in there as a predator, the good, the bad, and the ugly part of it, you know, it's hunting has a violence to it and it's not easy to like, I, I think as humans, we have the intellect to step outwardly of ourselves and look at that and it makes it uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think maybe tying into what the discussion we, that we started with is vested interest in landscape and species. In those places, if there wasn't people going up there to find sheep, who else is going to go there? And I mean, there's a lot of uh, research and funding that goes in off the back of the hunting in these places that are the arse end of nowhere, uh, entirely as a result of people buying tags. Yeah, I mean, it's it's builds a constituency of uh, folk that will protect these places because they've fallen in love with the land. And landscapes. they care if there was no sheep there. Whereas exactly. if there were no sheep there, what difference is that going to make to most people's lives? None, I would suggest. And 
having been somebody that was kind of in that camp because it was so out of the realm of possibility for me to go, I didn't have, um, you know, a lot of my conservation work has been, been in Wyoming and around species that I see a lot. And I didn't have a, well, I wouldn't say I didn't care, but I didn't have a lot of emotion wrapped up into doll sheep and, and this like, ooh, epic doll sheep hunt yeah. kind of thing. I was because it's like, so far eh. removed. And now having been there, you know, I'll be the first body to lie in front of a bulldozer <laughs> if it goes that way, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does. It builds it builds constituents and, and whether it's um, sage grouse in Wyoming and hunters that are, that are helping support the continuing of that species or um, doll sheep, it's... Uh, it, it builds a love of something that I think otherwise wouldn't be there. And what a, what, what a contradictory statement that seems right. to so many people. I think it's, yeah, it's one of my favorite things of talking about hunting when folks are like, how, how can you love something and, and kill it? And I think it's a connection to our food is I don't, I don't want to kill something that I don't have me- mega respect and care for, mm. you know, I, that's I, how most of us live our lives. Yeah. Cause yeah. we don't think, you shovel it in. Exactly. It's fuel for the day. Who cares where it came from? And you start thinking, you know, whether it's agriculture and its impact on wildlife um, or it's, you know, the beef industry, which, you know, can be done right, but often isn't. Or it's, uh, you know, the, the even even those of us that don't eat meat have an impact and, and we... Oh, we still have blood on it. Yeah, there's always going to be, you're always displacing something. To live is to consume, and to consume is to kill something. Um, and and it just is the degree of separation that you're comfortable with. And it's okay if you're not comfortable with hunting. I think that's, I don't want everybody to hunt. And they don't all have to be comfortable with hunting, but they do have to understand that it's not a, uh, I mean, we set ourselves up for failure by calling it a sport. Mm, yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, but but it's not. It's a it's a because of what people define as sport yeah. or what what's in their mindset. They're like, oh, as sports. games and trophies, games and trophies. fun. Right. Well, I mean, it yeah. is fun, but it's yeah. It's it's it's, it's you know it's it's hard to say it. It is fun, but it's um, it's life. I think it's because living is fun, <laughs> um, and and being able to like talk about the degree of separation you're comfortable with, you know, I would say more often than not, hunters have more in common with people that choose not to eat meat than Yeah, I totally agree with that. that. Yeah. And we've talked about that before, Tyler. Yeah, we've had plenty because of it's, uh, because it's uh because it's it's people actually considering their impact. Yeah. Or whether you agree with it or not, people are considering a, it more. It's a choice, it's a deliberate choice of I'm gonna eat this way because I wanna either know about where it's coming from or I want to have a relationship to that or I definitely don't want to do that. And uh, yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of vegans we've had conversations with where they've said... Which I feel like we should just use that as the common ground yeah. forward. I, we, we, we so focus on our how we go about it. Oh, you're different than me. Rather than being like, hey, but we actually like think very similarly. Yeah. yeah that's true. What, uh, in, in your work, what is the, the big challenges that you're facing right now? Like, what's the, the number one thing on, on your desk that's giving you grief? That you're you're fighting and trying to work out what the way forward is. Oh, um, everything. <laughs> or is the list does? too long? <laughs> uh, you're dealing with a lot of stuff, and even from what I read, and I don't see half the stuff that's actually going on in North America. You know, whether it be um, you know changing legislation for protecting wildlife, or um, you know the public land debate, which has been going on for the last couple of years. You seem there seems to be a lot of fires burning with yeah. regard to the protection of wildlife. I guess I can I'll maybe narrow it down to three. Um, 
one being an actual like what I am working on is um, the migration corridors and that looking at how to protect this uh, incredible thing that we have in Wyoming um, and and we're working on on all the different politics that are going into that and all the different opinions that are at the table right now trying to find a way forward um, without having to uh, piss anybody off royally yeah. I guess yeah. to put it to put it bluntly that you know the migration corridors is a big big thing that Wyoming Wildlife Federation is has on the forefront as is the wildlife crossings so finding funding for um to stop hitting deer on the road um and then i think the other two are a little more like higher level where uh, it's just always occupying my brain and and that is the role that hunting is occupying in the space of you know the american public on on the scale that we work on but overall like maybe the global public is hunting is um has represented itself very poorly in its history and it has a bad rap and it's been earned. It's not, you know, it's not a rap that it like, like we had folks that earned it. And you know what? <laughs> I, I want you to carry on that, but it's so important to take ownership of that. Yeah. Because that, I mean, that is why Tyler and, and the team are doing what they're doing now is to correct some of that. And that's exact. that's, that was, you know, my thought process has always been that like, we have let the bad apples speak for us. Of course we have a bad rap and we don't call out our own when they are doing things that are not okay. And we don't police our own. And, um, it's hard to do because to call out your friends is far harder than to call out your enemies. Um, but you know, we, we have focused on the wrong part of the story and we've let you know, I always say that like a photo is worth a thousand words, but in the case of hunting, a thousand words is not enough to talk about why you killed something. And so we have these quote unquote grip and grins that come out and to someone that has never hunted, never been around wildlife and doesn't understand what's going into that, this is a horrifying and bloody picture of Bambi, <laughs> you know, of, of, a, of, a, of a sweet little deer. And to not be able to explain that and, and the fact that social media is in front of everyone, um, you know, y you can't just leave that as, as an explanation for what you're doing. And because hunting is dealing with life and death because it's visceral and often perceived as violent, we are under a microscope and we haven't behaved like we've been under a microscope. And every one of us is an ambassador. And so when we whether have, we like it or whether not. we like it or not. And, and um, my, my, my thing that I would love is to be able to watch the hunting public realize this and not change their behavior, but to give it context you know, to tell your story around it more than just throw the photo up. Or if you do throw a picture up, um, understand that folks may not always understand where it is and to not react in anger when they don't, like, when they don't understand it and when they disagree. Um, hunters have been really good at closing the door in people's faces that I think that they could have had a good conversation with yeah, had like, they been open to it. Screw you, man. It's my right to hunt. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm it's the first great, one. It's a great comeback. Yeah. You're like, oh, this is exactly how you change things. Yeah. Um, and then the third sort of higher level thing I think that's always occupying and in, in, in my brain space is um, exactly that. It's not your right to hunt. It's your privilege. And we don't behave like it's a privilege, like we can lose it. And hunters don't show up. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'm the only paid staff member in the room. And there is not a hunter there, like, defending anything 
their resource, their quote unquote right or or anything in these in these management meetings that are open to the public and advertise is open to the public and hunters aren't there. People that are non-hunters are often there, but hunters don't show up. And I would love to see hunters take some like some time out of their ownership, day yeah. to, and some ownership into that. And I think that that goes to something which is that maybe the it is more than just telling the right stories because I would say in many cases now, and this is true in, in the fishing space as well. This is a conversation I had with a friend of mine just before coming here is that I'm not sure whether a lot of people who partake in it actually care enough, you know, they'd go about their, their sort of day-to-day business within this thing that they, they really enjoy and probably enjoy for a lot of reasons that they probably haven't thought about fully, but they're not, re- they're not as concerned about the implications as they should be. It's because we talk about it as a right. We talk about it as something we can't lose. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we, don't, we haven't impressed on folks that this, I mean, we absolutely can lose it, whether it's the actual ability to hunt or it's just we're going to lose the resource and there will be nothing left to hunt you know it's we have talked about it as this is our inalienable right that will never change and it's always going to be like this and screw you if you think differently um and we it's so preciously fleeting i mean it's it's on a knife's edge yeah and we get asked that all the time about trying to communicate with non-hunters and a lot of people of that mindset, hunters who att- think it's a right, they're like, well, why, why are you doing that? Why are you wasting yeah, your time? Why are well, you pandering? Because that 70 to 80% of the population globally who doesn't hunt has a say in things and they can be swayed one way or the other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they are participating often more time, more than, as you're saying, hunters are. And, I mean, some of the most contentious yeah. meetings I've sat in, um, you know, Wyoming was tackling a grizzly bear hunt that was very contentious. Yeah. Maybe four hunters were in the room. Maybe forty people and yet against all, it. And yet, all the hunters had a voice online about it. Yeah, and and they and, all but had an no opinion. No one was else. I mean, it was paid up. staff members in the room, which is like I'm I'm effective as a paid staff member. It's more effective when somebody is your voter or your constituent and shows up and um, in the states and says, "I voted you in. You will listen to me, and this is what I want." <laughs> so this was the, the 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 grizzly bears that they wanted to open up to be able to hunt twenty one or whatever it was. And uh, we talked about that with the bear and the bear trust podcast. Yeah, Jack. and then, an entirely other podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and one thing that you know, Simon Roosevelt always talks about, uh, you know, this idea, this whole phrase that's been used: hunting is conservation, right? And that a lot of people feel yeah, like <laughs> they are conservationists because part of their tax goes to fund conservation, yeah. and that that's enough. But th- that right. tax. Do you want to tell me if you made that voluntary that those people well, would just, still do that? That's just what I was going to say. Yeah. They don't have a choice in that. Right, right. right. And so in, in that sense, right, where, you know, I think that that's part of the conversation that we're addressing and trying to change too, is that, no, that's not enough. You need, we need to be doing more, all of us. And whether that's, I mean, just like you wake up every day, maybe we all try to be better humans. I mean, there's <laughs> like if the things we can do to be better. There's thing, more things we can do. And sure, there's time restrictions, right? Or you have family. And you do what you, have, you can do. Right. That's the thing is you don't have to like, uh, there's lots of things you can do. You don't yeah. have to, you know, dedicate your entire life to this. I mean, that would be great if you did, but that's not what we're asking. We're asking well, for a little bit. And what's important for what you do, especially with Artemis, is that you are, y'all are a resource to tell people how they can do it. Because I think that's a big problem. You know, people a lot don't of, know how to. Exactly. They, they have passion. They want to believe in something and they want to help. Like a lot of times- How to that, be effective. Right. Like yeah. after hurricanes, right? There's always, no, people don't know. Because there are people out there that are 
swindling and taking money, you, it's hard to know which one is the right one or how you can help. And so in this case, being able to give people information is good. Yeah, to be a clearinghouse has been, you know, in the sense of uh, whether it's teaching you how to be an advocate that is effective. And, um, you know, you can go into your decision makers and rant at them and not get anything done. Or you can go in there and be strategic and treat them like a human and actually get something done. Yeah. And just, I mean, it's amazing, like just teaching that or teaching the weird decorum that has to happen around some of our politics. You know, you have to say, yes, Mr. Chairman and committee members. And yeah. that's scary. It's built to be like very formal. And I totally get it when people are like intimidated by going and testifying in front of their decision makers. Cause it is, it's intimidating and it's made to be like that. Next time you go, you should wear that skunk hat. <laughs> you just, just walk in. Yeah. Not break eye contact yeah. the whole time. <laughs> For context, my brother has a, a skunk pelt that's turned into a hat. I think we're going to have to take a multiple. picture of that. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have, we'll have yes, you guys post those Yes, there was many of us stories. rocking them last night. Yeah. <laughs> Is, yeah. Oh, before, before I don't know. Before you close this out, I wanted to address the Bambi thing. I had a discovery the other day. Would we would we agree that most fawns are born in spring? Is that is that true? Uh, I mean, like at June. home, I would say it's closer to summer. Uh, most of ours are sort okay. of from June May. is the time. So for it, fawns. right. Yeah. So it, and that's not hunting season, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Bambi. I'm in the in the interest of hunters and poachers. That was a poacher that shot Bambi's mom. Not a hunter. Not a hunter. Because it was a, that the Bambi story is here, right? Yes. In North yes. It was Actually, a, the Bambi story is originally about a. Uh, it's a European. It's a British story. It's this okay. red stag, typically, which makes a lot of sense now when you watch it and you realize the weird okay, elk white tail deer thing. thing. Yeah. Right. So if it, if it was a red deer, then no, everything's it, shut down. There's no yeah. no season open. Yeah. So yeah, here same thing. So. Let's, I'd like to make that okay. distinction that there's all this hate about hunters Maybe. killing Bambi's mom. That was a poacher, not a, a hunter. Poacher. Maybe we should, we should make some memes. Hey. Like, this is a That's hunter, a this meme. is a poacher. <laughs> yeah, just with, like, the, you know, the seasons at the bottom of it. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write Disney about it. <laughs> I have a, I have a, I mean, the other side of that is also, like, what animal is Bambi? Because I think Bambi's a whitetail, but his dad is a red stag, and his mom might be a mule deer, <laughs> like, so I'm not really sure. Yeah. <laughs> he was an orphan. It's yeah. very, no one okay. knew. <laughs> Progressive species story. <laughs> it was a cartoon. It was a cartoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot wrong with Bambi on the, uh... <laughs> Uh, I know that you've got to get down the road because you don't live that close to where we're <laughs> recording this. <laughs> and it'd probably be nice if you were like back before dark. Oh, I, I, I am going to Thank get you up so much for making the effort to come up and see us because it was great to have everyone in the same room last night, even though I had to crash out early because I was still suffering from... from it was amazing. You know, it's worth it. I, I knew Nicole and, and everybody and Becca, I think, were the only two people I'd met before. But it was, I think, coming up and being surrounded by those folks last night and being here with you, Taylor. It's and, empowering. And it yeah. gives you... Because, you, you know, one of the things I find, uh, and I have to admit, like in the last six months in particular, I mean, I've been away from from home a lot um but in the last six months in particular i've just been feeling really worn down like because i've been involved in this kind of space and trying to articulate all the things that we've just been discussing in this podcast uh in a public forum for a couple of years well permanently for a couple of years but actually for a decade and it's kind of depressing because i don't feel like we make as much progress as the effort that goes in. Conservation is a game of losses. I was, yeah, well, exactly, yeah. Uh, but last night I was feeling, you know, I'm listening to everybody talk. And it, I don't think I've ever stood in a room with so many female hunters in my life before. That was awesome. And it was fantastic. <laughs> I was just, you know, I loved listening to the enthusiasm of everyone in the room. I was like, yeah, okay. I, you let yeah, those I'm feeling, times. I'm feeling better again. Because yeah, I've been feeling really yeah. shit about it. 
yeah. like in the last six months. Like to the point where, um, you know, I'm just like, I, I don't even know why I do this anymore because what difference am I making? That and Edward... yet I put, I, like this is everything I do now. And yet I don't feel sometimes that it's, you know, worth the effort, which is a terrible way to think. But it's, and I, I'm sure there'll be people listening to this who have gone through periods feeling exactly the same. Do you know the Edward Abbey quote about being the half-hearted fanatic? No. Oh, I don't You're know. You're about to I, change my life. I'm about to change your life. I've, I might have to pull it up though because it's a little okay, bit yeah, of a paragraph okay. we can, long. We can, yeah, look it up. Uh, <laughs> um, or Tyler's got his phone there. I. It is one of those things where it. When I started working in conservation, I had a uh, mentor who uh, printed this out and put it on my desk, and it sits on my desk and it reminds me because it is so easy to get um, like beat down around that. The quote is, one final paragraph of advice. Do not burn yourselves out. Be as I am, a reluctant enthusiast, a part-time crusader, a half-hearted fanatic. Save the other half of yourselves and your lives for pleasure and adventure. It is not enough to fight for the land. It is even more important to enjoy it while you can, while it's still here. So get out there and hunt and fish and mess around with your friends. Ramble out yonder and explore the forests, climb the mountains, bag the peaks, run the rivers. Breathe deep of that yet sweet and lucid air. Sit quietly for a while and contemplate the precious stillness, the lovely, mysterious, and awesome space. Enjoy yourselves. Keep your brain in your head and your head firmly attached to the body, the body active and alive. And I promise you this much. I promise you this one sweet victory over our enemies, over those desk-bound men and women with their hearts in a safe deposit box and their eyes hypnotized by desk calculators. I promise you this, you will outlive the bastards. And that is how we are going to finish Woo! the podcast. <laughs> what a tremendous way to end. Thank you so much for taking the time. You have now changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Is I'm that, glad nice, I could yeah. share that. Is that from Desert Solitaire? I think yeah. so. I yeah. have that book here. Really? Yeah, I'm going to peek through it. it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, safe travels home. Thank you. And uh, we're going to be speaking you a too. lot in the next week because we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. <laughs> Volume four. We'll be chatting. Okay. Thank you once again for listening. You will be hearing from us in another two weeks where I will be bringing you yet another contributor to Volume four, Modern Huntsman. It's uh, another incredible interview. And the focus is going to be on spearfishing and ocean conservation. I'm really looking forward to bringing that to everybody. Uh, I'm not sure whether I'm going to be able to do an intro with my brother for that one or not. I haven't quite looked at the diary to work out if I'm, we're going to be home at exactly the same time. Uh, but very, very soon, we will both be back in our intros and outros and recording some new podcasts back at home. I know that I've already got four lined up for November back in the UK. Uh, so that's exciting. Don't forget to go and check us out on social media, Pace underscore brothers on Instagram. That's where we're posting most of the ins and outs of what we are up to. And of course, we'd always like to hear from you. If you like a show, don't like a show, send us a message or shoot us an email. All the links are in the description for this podcast. 